the Shawshank Redemption is a movie about a man who went to prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he spends years locked away in prison. But over time, he really develops some deep and meaningful friendships with his fellow inmates. And as you watch the movie, eventually some of these inmates are uh, paroled and then released back into the world. But in the movie, there's a very peculiar outcome. These men who spent years, some even decades, locked away, cannot enter back into the world and function as free people. The real world makes no sense to them after so much time behind bars. One of the men even jokes that now that he's free, he needs to go out and commit a robbery just so that he can be caught and sent back into prison where he'll feel at home again, where things make sense to him. In the movie, they call it being institutionalized. It's the difficulty of accepting and enjoying freedom if all you've known is bondage. And it sounds maybe pretty foolish to say it out loud, but that's only because we don't know what it's like. But I want to tell you all this morning that the Bible actually warns against this. The Bible tells us that if you are a believer and follower of Jesus, that this is a very real threat to us, that we can be institutionalized. Jesus has set us free in so many ways, and yet we tend to want to go back into the bondage in which we used to live. See, we've been walking through the letter of Galatians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, with great urgency and seriousness. Because the churches in this region of Galatia were at risk of walking back into what they once were. They were at risk of forsaking the Christian faith. This was no small matter that Paul is addressing in this letter, and the sharpness, the urgency of his words reflects that. So I want to give us just a very quick rundown here of the situation, a little recap of where we've been so far. The Apostle Paul had gone through Galatia preaching the gospel of Jesus, a message they had never heard before, these Gentiles, these former pagans. But many of these people in these cities received Jesus. They trusted this gospel message, and, and new Christian churches were born in these cities. But sometime later, in Paul's absence, some false teachers crept in and planted, they sowed a different message. They said to these Gentiles, hey, you've trusted Jesus, that's great. But God will not really accept you by faith alone. You must now also become like us Jews, the historical people of Israel. Because, see, we're, the, we're God's chosen people. We've got a book that proves it. Genesis through Malachi, in their case. We're the true sons of Abraham. We're the recipients of God's commandments, his law, and so on. And so if you want God to really accept you, then you have to become as we are. You've got to keep the law of Moses. You need to receive circumcision as the mark of your being set apart to God. You need to adopt our Jewish life and practice. That's the only way in where you can really be secure, that God loves you and has received you. Well, Paul rejects this message in the strongest possible terms. And if you've been with us or if you just read on your own in Galatians, you see a sharpness in his tone. Paul says there is no one justified in the flesh. That means nobody is set right with God based on our keeping of the law. There is no such religion. In fact, rather than saving us, the law actually condemns 
us because we sinners are incapable of keeping it. And so God didn't give the law so that we would use it to justify ourselves. Paul says God gave his son to justify us through his life and death and resurrection. That means that sinners like me, we have, we have one glorious hope, one and one only, and that is that we might be redeemed by Jesus. That's our only hope, it's our sure hope, and it's an abundant hope. It's one that cannot fail. And so the message of Galatians is very simple and clear. It's that God accepts us entirely by faith alone, in Christ alone. And this has immediate implications for the churches of Galatia. Paul says it back in chapter 1. If you accept the false message of salvation by your own works, then you are deserting God who called you by His grace. Any attempt to add on to the gospel of Jesus only ends up subtracting from it. Any attempt to add to Jesus ends up losing Jesus in the process. You can't have it both ways. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is going to spell out for us now this difference. The difference between the freedom that we enjoy in Christ and the bondage of being under the law. And it's as far as the east is from the west. Galatians 5 verse 1. Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says it to those who have trusted in Christ. You really are free. And that's, y'all, that's not wishful thinking. That's not just nice religious language. Christ has truly set us free, free from the penalty of sin, no longer under condemnation free from the ruling power of sin so that we can actually live righteously and free from any system of religion that demands you and I achieve our righteousness in order to earn God's favor. The grace of God is something we receive, we cannot achieve. And so we are free. Jesus has purchased us out of our bondage to sin so that we are no longer slaves, Paul says, we are now sons. No longer slaves, but now the very sons of God, heirs of his promises and the riches of his inheritance. Something has changed, and it's a gift, not a wage. Therefore, Paul says, keep standing firm. Do not be moved away from your God-given freedom. Do not submit yourself again to a yoke, to a burden of slavery. Y'all, and what I just told us, I mean, that's basically most of Galatians right there in a nutshell. Paul is saying, if you accept this teaching that Jesus is insufficient to save you, meaning you must fill in the gaps with your own religious works and activities, then you are consciously walking back into the prison cell from which Jesus has already set you free. You are putting the weight, the yoke of your justification back on your own shoulders and you're becoming a slave once more to a kind of life that can lead only to death. 
You're enslaving yourself to a law that, first of all, you cannot keep. And even if you could, it's a law that cannot save you. Why would you go back? Now, this is for Paul as a statement of truth generally. Stand firm in your freedom. Do not go back to what you were. But there's a particular application he has in mind here. The first fatal step onto this slippery slope is the act of circumcision. We see that in verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Why does Paul take such a seemingly small, insignificant issue, maybe in our minds, and speak of it in such harsh and dramatic terms? What's the explanation for this? Hard for us to understand in our own cultural moment. But let's just let's dig a little bit and, and try to discern. The right of circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh. It was commanded by God. It's not something that, that these false teachers just pulled out of thin air. God commanded it to Abraham to be a sign to Abraham and his offspring. It was a, a, a sign of belonging to God as his covenant people. So every baby boy that was born in Israel was circumcised on the eighth day of his birth. And every foreigner, when foreigners were grafted into Israel from among the nations, they would undergo this rite also, even as adults. And so maybe it helps us to understand and explain why the Jewish teachers would be so adamant that the Gentiles who are becoming Christians, they must follow the same pattern. Because this is what sets you apart. This is what God decrees. You cannot belong to him unless you add circumcision to your spiritual resume. You have to become as we are. You've got to enter in through the same door. But we come to realize that this, this is not a feature of the new covenant that is brought about in Jesus Christ. This physical act of circumcision no longer applies to those who are saved by faith in Jesus. And that's made abundantly clear early on as the church was, was in its, still in its infancy. We, we referenced the book of Acts earlier. In Acts chapter 15, this issue was brought up with great debate because some of the Jewish, now Christians, they couldn't compute of a salvation for the Gentiles that didn't look Jewish, that didn't come over to their side of the law and the keeping of the law. And so they showed up saying, if the Gentiles are going to be Christians then they must receive circumcision and they must, be a, 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 they must take upon themselves the law of Moses. Right? And so there was a debate. Is this right? Is this, is this the, the, um, the door that the Gentiles must enter in? The Apostle Peter stands up and stands against any such notion. And I'm going to read to us here. This is from Acts 15. Peter says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test 
by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. You notice the the language that Paul uses, the yoke of slavery, same language as Peter. Why put the yoke upon them that none of us have been able to bear? So Peter's point is clear that both Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same way, without distinction, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Our hearts are cleansed and we all receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Why then, after the fact, would we place the yoke, the burden of the law, on their necks? A burden that none of us could ever bear and our fathers before us couldn't bear. Wouldn't such a yoke, a burden, actually nullify the freeness of God's grace given in Jesus? A free gift that in the end is not really free. Because now here's the list of commands you must follow. Now Peter saw it, and of course Paul sees it. That's why when we go back to verse 2 now, Galatians 5.2, Paul raises the stakes. He says, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You are now severed from Christ, fallen from grace if you seek to be justified by the law. Y'all, the sharpness of these words is very intentional. If you go back now, after the fact, and sever your own flesh, thinking that this is going to earn you some measure of God's acceptance that you lack, then you are actually severing yourself from Jesus. This is not a mere physical activity that you undergo to appease the false teachers. You are severing yourself from trusting in Christ because you are rejecting the sufficiency of His grace to save you. You're making your own work the basis of your salvation and you're coming back under the law. Imposing upon yourself the burden of meeting God's righteous demands. And y'all, here's the kicker. Paul says, if you do this, this, just this one little thing, if you do this, you're taking on the whole thing. If you make one law the requirement to really get you in with God, you're signing up for the whole law. Because if it's one, then it's the whole thing. If Jesus needs anything else from you to get you saved, then it's all on you. Because law and grace don't mix. If I trust that one thing can save me, if I'll just do it, Paul says, I've got to take on all of it. I need, to, I need to observe the law perfectly, which if we've read through Galatians to this point, Paul has already told us, can't be done. We only end up under the curse of the law for our inability to obey its commands. Law and grace don't mix. If you take one law, you've got to take it all. Now, conversely, if you take Jesus by faith, you get all of Jesus. And you have no need now for anything else. It's finished. And so Paul says, get off the plan of the law. Get off of this idea. Reject this idea of taking on any yoke as necessary to save you. Because in that case, you're voluntarily walking back into slavery. You're imprisoning yourself in your sin all over again. And y'all, the sheer insanity of this really sets in with us if we realize what we'd be forsaking. Look at verse 5. 
and the glory of the Christian faith. For we, verse 5, we Christians through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And this is the contrast Paul is dying for us to see. The false message teaches us this. Through your flesh, by keeping the law, you are pursuing a hope of righteousness. And this is how most religions function. Spend your life trying your best to be good enough to merit God's acceptance, to earn your place at the table in heaven. And so through your flesh, by keeping the law, you have to earn your place. And in that case, of course, you can never really be sure. You can never feel totally secure. You can't sleep soundly at night because who knows if you've done enough. You'll never know. But Christians fall into a whole new category. Through the Spirit, Paul says, not the flesh. By faith, not by works. We wait for the hope of righteousness. And what that means is because the Spirit of God has sealed us as God's beloved children, a gift we receive freely by faith, we now wait for a righteousness that is already ours. Waiting implies a passive receiving. It's not something we work to earn. We receive it and we rest securely in it because our righteousness is not found in us. It's found in Christ. That's why John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan was a real dude. John Bunyan, many years ago, when he was despairing of his own sin, he said, where is my righteousness? And then it dawned on him, my righteousness is in heaven. It is Christ. And so we wait for the hope of righteousness because it is found in Jesus who has lived and died and has been raised again. He is our righteousness. That's why Paul says in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. They no longer count at all. Only faith expressing itself through love. Now, we'll talk more about that as, as chapters 5 and 6 go along. But the only thing that counts now, the only reason we can be secure for our eternal future is because we wait for the hope of righteousness, which is found only in Christ. That's why we have faith and we don't rest on our own works. Now, we'll come back around this a little bit as we close in a minute, but I want you to, I want you to see how Paul finishes his point here. And there's a, there's a righteous anger in his words. It's not hard to observe. Verse 7, Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Paul says this 
false teaching has not come from God, and therefore it must not be tolerated, not even a little bit. And I said it's not hard to see the righteous anger in Paul's words here, because Paul says, I'm being persecuted for preaching the message of God's free grace to the Gentiles. If Paul wanted an easy way out, if he wanted an easier path, persecution-free, then he would have preached a message of grace plus works, because then everybody would have been happy with him. But no, the message of the cross, he says, is an offense. And it's the reason I'm being persecuted. Some of these Jewish teachers are coming around now trying to say there's a truer and greater salvation available to you if you'll simply work for it and earn your way in. Ridiculous. As if the cutting away of a body part could possibly be a more acceptable sacrifice than the death of God's own son on the cross. And y'all, you can apply any work to that equation. As if any single thing you or I ever did, no matter how noble, no matter how religiously motivated, no matter how sincere, anything we do cannot compare or compete with the sacrifice of the death of God's own son for us. And nothing we do can complement, add to, and fill in that gap. There is no gap. It's all been accomplished. And so Paul's anger is, is in this, that what this, this false teaching that the, that the Galatians are at the very least considering is an affront to God. It demeans God by saying that what God has done isn't quite good enough for you. And now there's more to be done. No. That's why we can explain verse 12 when Paul is, you know, y'all, grown-ups, verse 12 means exactly what you think it means, Okay. And it's there to show us the utter shame and foolishness of this false message of works. This is Paul saying, listen, if if cutting off a little bit would make God happy, well, why not just go all the way? I mean, really, if, 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 uh, if a little bit would merit God's blessing and favor and love in your life, well, why stop there? Why stop at a little? See, this was the practice of a lot of pagan priests of the day, that in appeasing the false gods, they would mutilate themselves to show how devoted they were. And Paul is saying, these false teachers are doing just that. By declaring that God could be appeased by our works, greater than the the satisfaction of the cross of his own son. And so y'all, and just again, apply whatever law or rule you want. The deeper principle is the same. The person who looks to the law for salvation, no amount of law-keeping will ever be enough. You'll never get to the end of the day fully satisfied, fully uh, righteous. And you'll certainly not get to the end of your life that way. No amount is ever enough. But to the person who receives salvation as the gift of God, there's freedom, there's rest, there's true joy. Because we're no longer bound by our sin. We're no longer dependent on ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ, and he is the hope of our righteousness. That's what it means to be free and no longer under the yoke of what we were. You know, as we round the corner here and close, uh, my hope is to give us at least a little bit of helpful application. There's an issue with a, a scripture like this. Clearly, this particular problem, circumcision, was a massive issue in the early church. It dominated so much 
of the conversation and controversy. But the particulars don't, they don't much apply to us today. Okay? I'm willing to bet that nobody has ever tried to obligate you to be circumcised as a matter of religious duty. It's probably never going to come your way. But it shouldn't be a stretch for us to see the deeper principles, the things that I've tried to be kind of point us to here, that this is true of anything that we might try to add to the gospel of grace. We create a separate category, just as the false teachers did. Anything we do to redefine the terms of God's acceptance of us, any form of religion that looks in the mirror rather than looking to the cross, anything that that points back to you rather than to Jesus. And y'all, if you think that's not a problem anymore, I just want to encourage us to consider this has always been a problem. It's always a problem for sinful human beings. Paul says it in this text. The cross is a stumbling block. The cross is an offense to us. Sometimes even to those of us who call ourselves Christians because we struggle with the idea that God would really truly accept me. Not on the basis of what I do, but entirely in Christ. Apart from my own works, do I really believe that God would love me, receive me, accept me? without me contributing to it. It's a struggle. And so here's the outcome. The outcome is what we call legalism. Legalism means that there's something you must do. There are laws you must keep. There are standards you must uphold if God's really going to accept you and if we're really going to accept you here in the church. So y'all, I'm going to say this jokingly, but y'all hear my heart on this. A lot of us, have known legalism up close and personal. A lot of us grew up in a home or a church where Christian faith was defined by legalism. It was defined by a certain code of moral behavior. Right? I don't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't hang out with girls that do. <laughs> I don't dance, I don't play cards, I don't go to the picture show. Now, you can fill in your own blanks, of course. I'm kind of using some old-fashioned examples, maybe. But you fill in your own blanks. You can tell the same story, that if, if our understanding of Christianity is mainly or purely a moral enterprise where the good guys get to come in and sit up front and the bad guys, you don't even need to bother showing up because you have to earn and maintain your place here. How could God love you and accept you otherwise? That's legalism. And that's embedded in the heart of every human being. It really is. Over the last few years, there's been a a different kind of legalism, a big uptick in defining Christianity, not so much by, you know, dancing and drinking, but by political affiliation and how you vote and which candidates you support, which social causes you align with or reject, whether you wore a mask or not. We can create any, listen, we can create any standard we want as to who's really in and who's out. But in, in, in the end, every single standard that we create either serves to be an addition to God's grace or a replacement for his grace. And in that case, it is not from God. The human heart is so naturally legalistic. Y'all, we will do this till kingdom come. I'm always looking for a way to justify myself, to set myself apart from others, 
to build up my own resume in hopes that God or even you would accept me. And y'all, this is the kind of thing I think it just requires us to examine our own hearts. I don't know what your own brand of legalism looks like. I have a sense of what mine is. But we just have to ask the question, each one of us, is there anything I'm trusting in or banking on apart from the grace of Jesus Christ? And if so, Paul pleads with us today, this persuasion does not come from God who calls you. It's poison to your soul, and it will poison the whole church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. If we allow this to take root, it will destroy us, as it will with any half gospel that depends on our works in place of God's mercy. And so I'm going to implore us, I'm, I, starting with me, to embrace a freedom that only Christ can secure. Embrace the freedom we have in Christ and live as those who are really free. Do not be subject again to any yoke, any burden that only enslaves those whom God has set free. We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. If that's true, then nothing else need be added. Nothing else can be added. There are no gaps to fill. There are no improvements to be made. There are no extra boxes to check. We are truly free, fully forgiven, unconditionally accepted, and eternally secure. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so if we have come by faith to know the joy of freedom in Christ, may we never, ever turn back. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you might open our eyes if there is any legalism in our hearts, even just remnants of what used to be, Father, reveal it to us. If we hold ourselves or others to standards that are not of you, if we assume that because we outclass and outpace other people in our, in our own estimation that maybe we're more acceptable. Or perhaps on the other side, Lord, if we see our sin and our unworthiness and feel only despair and assume, Lord, that, that you're uh, through with us and you've rejected us forever. Father, whichever side we may fall on, Lord, it's all legalism. It's all our assumption that somehow there's something we must do for you to really love us and draw us in and accept us and forgive us and save us. Father, will you root it all out this morning? Leave no remnant behind. 
We are free in Jesus Christ. We are saved, justified, forgiven. We wait for the hope of righteousness. We do not achieve it. Father, will you please, please grant us this morning clear and bright eyes, receptive ears and hearts to receive Christ as all-sufficient. There is nothing else, nothing. Not our most religious behavior, nothing can be added to him. Father, let us stand firm as Paul commands. Let us stand firm. It is for freedom that we've been set free. So, Father, I pray that by faith we would would actually believe it, stand in it, walk in it, delight in this freedom. We are no longer bound by our sin. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer under a yoke that only crushes and kills. We are in Christ. Father, I pray this morning that that for some of us, very resolutely, some of us would just consciously feel this yoke, this weight lifted. as we embrace Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we will be more righteous, more obedient, more joyfully inclined to walk in the truth because we are no longer weighed down by a law we cannot keep. We are free to walk in the footsteps of the Son, Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his awesome name. Amen.